0: Thank you. The fall conference season is right around the corner and we've got two events that you need to put on your calendar. On October 19th, we are back with Transition AI New York. Transition AI is the leading B2B event for energy practitioners and artificial intelligence experts. The New York event will explore current use cases and deployments within electric utilities, the role AI can play in streamlining project development, maximizing revenues and integrating DERs. Plus, I'm going to do some live interviews and storytelling on stage. We'll present some deep market research and we'll have a workshop on use cases. Our listeners get 10% off by using the promo code pspods 10 Come join me, our journalists and researchers, and a bunch of experts in Manhattan for Transition AI. Register at the link in the show notes or go to transition-ai.com. And for you West Coasters, Canary Media is holding another Canary Live. This one is in Berkeley, California. It is on October 3rd. These events are super fun. We've hosted a couple of them with Canary. Uh, Panelists are handpicked by the Canary editorial team, and they'll dive into all things related to the energy transition, the Inflation Reduction Act, technology, and uh, innovation. Drink, eat, socialize with clean energy leaders, investors, inventors, public leaders, and advocates. You can follow the link in the show notes to get your tickets to Canary Live Bay Area today. Transition AI New York, Canary Live Bay Area, Put them on your fall calendar for October. We'll see you there.
1: From the studios of PostScript Media and Canary Media. I'm Shail Khan, and this is Catalyst. Yeah, the biggest
2: problem at this point in the market's development is just getting people to understand what the heck you're doing and to get them comfortable that you're not somehow hijacking their car or gonna leave them with their vehicle drained sitting as a doorstop in their in their driveway.
1: So the size of a Tesla Powerwall home battery is 14 kilowatt hours. Meanwhile, a Tesla Model 3, the vehicle, has a battery as large as 82 kilowatt hours. Or if you wanna go really big, a Chevy Silverado EV, which is coming out soon, will come with a battery pack as large as 200 kilowatt hours. So. You do the math on which is going to have the biggest impact on the grid.
3: The entire solar industry rests, both literally and figuratively, on a vulnerable material. That material is aluminum. It is one of the most carbon-intensive metals with the bulk of its supply originating in China. But what if module frames made from domestic recycled steel replaced it? On May 30th, Latitude Media and Origami Solar will host a Frontier Forum that explores what would happen if the U.S. solar industry shifted from aluminum to recycled steel. We'll explore the impact on supply chains, costs, technical performance, and carbon emissions. This is a must attend for anyone who cares about the domestic solar industry. Register for free by clicking the link in the show notes, or go to latitudemedia.com/events.
1: I'm Shale Khan. I invest in revolutionary climate technologies at Energy Impact Partners. Welcome. So when I think about the impact of electric vehicles on the grid, there's the good and there's the bad. Starting with the bad, uh, uncontrolled charging of electric vehicles at scale could very easily start to overload portions of the distribution grid. It's not hard to imagine, and in fact, there are real examples of neighborhoods with lots of electric vehicles, everyone charging at the same time during peak hours, and effectively doubling the peak load on that circuit. Now, multiply that by the entire country, and you can imagine the problem. So, that's the bad. The good comes in two parts. First, Well-managed charging, where EVs soak up excess generation and flatten the overall load curve could actually help make electricity easier to serve and potentially even less costly once levelized. And then the second thing, which is maybe the bigger deal long-term, is that EVs have these huge battery packs, much larger than most home batteries that people are starting to use for backup power. So what do you do with them? Do you offer resilience for the home? Should they discharge into the grid? Is it actually worthwhile for the customer? This nexus, how to best manage and leverage EV batteries, falls under the umbrella bucket of V to X, or vehicle to X. In some ways, it's an amalgamation of independent markets, but since they're all using the same asset, the EV battery, at the same time, while it is plugged in, they're worth considering together. And that is the job of our guest this week, Ty Jaegerson. Ty is the Vita X lead at General Motors. And with no further ado, here's Ty. Ty, welcome. Phil,
2: very glad to be here.
1: Thanks for having me. This is uh, on my bucket list. Let's start here. We're going to talk about Vita X, which is a term people throw around to mean a bunch of different things. It, it, you actually have the, the term in your title. Uh, Vita X is in your title at GM. So what does it mean to you? Yeah,
2: it's a it's a good question um, it, it can mean different things to different folks um, for us V2 X is really uh, the business associated with uh, what you can do with your car when it's plugged in um, and the associated technologies and user experience um, a lot of folks um, that are just poking around in this space can get confused about uh, V2 X uh, on the electricity side versus V2 X for the communication side um, for for a vehicle, the vehicle communications or vehicle, the street light communications, that's also v to x.
1: um but this is just on the energy side, just when it's plugged in, just when it's not moving, okay. and so I like that frame. so things you can do with uh, an electric vehicle when it is plugged in. So when I think about that, I think about three high level categories, and I'm curious whether there are others that I haven't thought of. those three being. V1G, or managed charging, depending on how you want to define it, you can you can schedule when you charge and don't charge the vehicle. Second being V2G, uh, which is discharge the vehicle into the grid. And the third being v to h which is discharge the vehicle into the home, or I guess into a building, um, generally for, for backup resilience purposes. Are there others that I'm missing, or are those the three main categories as you think about it?
2: Those are the three main categories. Um, you know, people are also connecting vehicle to load and that could be when you're plugged in or not. And you've got vehicle, the building versus vehicle, the other types of infrastructure, um, which is sort of a mashup of V to
1: G and V to H, but basically those are the right categories. I will say as an aside, uh, I don't know, maybe a year ago, there was a, I think a doctor on Twitter who in Texas who had, I think it was a Ford F-150, uh, lightning that is capable of doing V to H and, um, they had an outage in Texas, and he used the, used the vehicle to power his lab. Uh, he happens to do vasectomies, so he called it v to v <laughs> um, which is a category I hadn't heard before, but, uh, but one that we probably don't need to talk about a whole lot right now. It's it's a wonder that they don't put that in more TV
2: advertisements advertising that Ford capability. That's right. <laughs> uh I think we'll see I think we'll see more and more stories about creative uses of uh of the power you can get from these vehicles.
1: I actually think that is true, right? Like these are big batteries and and people are just the capability to use them for things like using them to power work sites or whatever. Like these are all these are all new, but we'll focus on the the three we talked about. Starting with the one that is is most straightforward, or at least most uh, immediate, which is the V one G managed charging world. So, how do you think about that that world as it stands today in the sort of early days of EV adoption here?
2: Yeah, I, I think all, all three of those different categories are you know are still relatively early days. In the in the V one G category, we actually have a half dozen programs in place right now um, where we've partnered with utilities. And we're using these vehicles that are already in the field in customers' hands, um, and we're helping them uh, use the vehicles to manage the load on the grid. Um, The way we do that is we get the the vehicle owners to pre-agree on a compensated basis to participate in these programs. And then when the utilities have a grid event, um, either on the spot or planned in a day or two in advance, we'll send a note to the vehicle owners um typically through the the my brand app, so the my Chevy or the my Buick app, or whatever the stuff they use every day, saying, Hey, do you mind if we if we delay your charging tomorrow at two p m um and that's part of the program you 've agreed to participate in if they can great, if they can't, they can always cancel that particular event." Um, but the critical thing here is that this is driving one of the most important parts of this technology, which is the UI and the UX that creates a, a reasonable expectation and a comfort for participating in these programs um, on the part of the customer. That's that's an important hurdle to get over because this is new stuff for people and it, it takes them a while
1: to get their head around how it works. Yeah, to that point, one of the things I've wondered, I, I think what distinguishes this category, V1G, from the other two we're going to talk about is that the other two are are sort of nice to have they're like cool things you can do with the vehicle when it's when it's plugged in this one is a need to have if we don't figure out managed charging then there's basically no way EVs scale up to the scale that we need them to and you know clearly there are lots of different ways permutations you you could invent for how to introduce this to customers how much to make it mandatory versus optional and then how to compensate them for it and i'm curious in the early days what what you're seeing in terms of what it takes to get high adoption from customers, how much do we have to pay them? Or, you know, are there clever things being done in terms of how to compensate? Like, what works here?
2: Yeah, I think I think there's there's a lot of clever stuff being done in the space just because none of it's been done before, and everyone's just kind of trying to figure it out on the fly. You know, the biggest problem at this point in the market's development is just getting people to understand what the heck you're doing and to get them comfortable that you're not somehow hijacking their car or going to leave them with their vehicle drained sitting as a doorstop in their, in their driveway. Um, and so there's a lot of education that goes into just getting people comfortable with it. Um, the compensation side is interesting because um, on one hand, people are just tickled at the very idea of getting paid to... Provide the option for this charging curtailment to happen, um, but also it's a it's a particular vehicle owner that's that's available to participate in these programs we're running because it's all Bolt owners at this point for us, um, and the, the demographic of people buying Bolts is very different than than the folks who are going to be buying the first Silverados coming out first EV Silverados coming out later this year. Um, so so you have educational requirements that are just not going to be relevant, you know, three or four years from now. And, and we haven't really tested the economics of what's going to be compelling for folks going forward. Um, but I also think that that eventually the, the adoption rates for this stuff are going to be high just because I think it's going to be very widely accepted and everyone's going to know that they're going to get a little bit of trickle cash coming through these functions and, and people will just be doing it generally. I think there's some question marks around, you know, how is that going to work with the, with the CapEx associated with V2G versus V1G? And we can talk about that. Um, but but i wholly agree with you that that this is this is not an optional if we're going to get to the penetration levels of renewables we're looking for and the penetration levels of evs we're looking for um because the system's going to going to crack if we're not thoughtful and aggressive about these these dynamics
1: yeah the way i think about it is that ultimately there's going to be some combination of carrot and stick here there's a little bit of both of them now, but for, for most customers, uh, it's mostly carrot at this point. Let us compensate you a little bit for your, yeah. for your managed charging. Ultimately, if that doesn't work well enough, it becomes mostly stick, and that's going to come in the form of time of use charges that are going to become really punitive if you're, if you're charging your vehicle at the wrong time.
2: I, th- I think that's I think that's right. My my guess is that what we're going to see before too long is utility programs or state subsidy programs where um, where your your charging capacity or you your utility rates are going to be charged uh, relative to your participation in these types of programs. Um, if you think about if you think about what's going to happen, like I remember when I was at Google and we were doing some early test demos of um, of grid monitoring and, and EVs. Um, we went to City of Palo Alto utility, and they're like, "You you can't put another charger on this street. There's already two chargers on this street." We're like, well, "What do you mean?" I'm like, well, it costs us, you know, fifty thousand dollars to put a new pole transformer upgrade at the end of the street. So, like, no more EV chargers. And I remember that time thinking, like, this system is just not set up for this type of adoption. But but it is set up for this type of adoption if the if the hardware and the software and the vehicles and the user experience are tightly aligned and that's really what that's what the that's what the industry is really gearing up for is how do you do this wisely so that it's an enhancement to the grid as opposed to a destabilizing function for the grid
1: right so i think clearly one way or another a combination of carrot and stick like v1g is inevitable um it's it's going to happen it's going to come in lots of different forms there are many permutations of it right like timing of it and length and what are you actually asking customers to do and how do you get them to sign up and all those things but but this one seems inevitable the other two uh i guess are, are a little less proven at this point so i think in for that reason in part more interesting to talk about um you alluded to the the trade-offs with v2g but let, let's just talk about like what what have been the hesitations historically about v2g there's been a lot of skepticism about it i think that Seems to be morphing a little bit in real time.
2: Yeah, there's a bunch of things. One is one is just the the, the public perception about the public perception, and are people going to be willing to let you do this? Um, I kind of put that in the in the same category as range anxiety. I think technology is solving that problem is kind of a Y two K thing. Like, just time will deal with that, and, and people will be less worried about it. Um, but I think also that people are um, people are willing to. Um, try things when they see that it's in their financial benefit to do so. And they're really going to be um, jumping on top of this because it's going to make sense for them.
1: What about the, I mean, the other uh, area of skepticism historically has been, if you're going to discharge your vehicle battery into the grid, are you going to degrade the battery? So are you going to have a shorter lifetime on the battery? And or are you going to void the warranty on the battery? And those have been fairly significant. Areas of hesitation I think
2: yeah there, there are big areas of hesitation and and we've looked a lot at that and I think the, the consensus is that um, first of all the batteries are all getting better and also people's understanding of how these V2G programs are going to work is also getting much more sophisticated So a lot of that early analysis was based on um, batteries with less um, with less resilient life cycles. But more importantly, they were based on, uh, largely on calculations that that a V to G program participation meant you were going to be slamming this thing 100% up and down and fully discharging and charging twice a day. That's just not how that, this is not how it's going to work. I mean, these, you know, this is the value of these batteries is going to be more in the power than in the energy. And it's going to be more in the capacity than in the KWH, right? So you're going to you're you're going to have the the value is that these things are going to be available and you know maybe sometimes used for a little bit of peak shaving but not for gunning the whole thing up and down in most cases um now in some cases that might be that might be what's going on if you're in a really stressed part of the grid um but we'll be able to track that and and we'll know way ahead of time whether or not the the charging activity is remotely at risk for Impinging on the the warranty requirements, and if you're making that much money, which you will be, if the grid is really that needy for all that power, then then there will be a financial option for people to opt out of the warranty or buy an upgrade or whatever it is. But but the financial
1: circumstances will will reward that, and we just got to figure that out. There's an interesting point in there that you th- should think of those think of batteries from the grid's perspective, EV batteries from the grid's perspective as being more of a capacity resource than an energy resource, which means basically. Um, You know, they may may not be discharging all the time, except for in those cases, like you said, that that they're in a particularly stressed part of the grid, but the grid can count on them being there when they need it, or when the grid needs it, rather, which is an interesting point when you think about an electric vehicle battery, right? I mean, batteries alone have, like, struggled to get capacity value in electricity markets, um, even stationary batteries, because it's been a process to get grid operators sort of comfortable with the the notion that they will be they can be counted on and available as a capacity resource. A mobile battery presumably is even more difficult to count on in that regard. Do I know for sure that this person's going to be home with sufficient capacity in their battery to charge? I assume the way that you get around that is in aggregate, right? And you just assume that like across a a large enough aggregation of vehicles, some of them will be there. But like what how much of a how much do we still have to prove in terms of being able to quantify the capacity value of these batteries.
2: Yeah, if if you look at statistically how reliable the any given vehicle is going to be, any given vehicle, you can't count on it at all. Um, but, you know, we're going to be putting millions of vehicles out in the field, and so are other companies. Um, and it doesn't take too long before, you know, that's gigawatts of power. And it doesn't take too long before you'll you'll strike this, relatively functional balance of real capacity and real customer response time. So you'll be able to know what it is. I mean, a coal plant is what, like, I don't know, 80, 90% uptime and reliability, if you call on it in a certain certain time zone. Well, if you've, if you've got a million vehicles and you've got a track record on how those vehicles perform over the last 20 events, um, it's kind of like, like thermostats. You know, we I think probably ten years ago people were saying thermostats just foundationally are not dispatchable resources, and now we know that. Well, if you have a million thermostats and you've done it twenty times, then then actually it's more dispatchable than a than a discrete peaking resource. And I think you're going to find that with with vehicles as well. It's going to be very fungible. It's going to be very predictable. We're going to know exactly where they are in the grid. Um, and people say like, well, they're going to move around. Geez. Yeah, they're going to move around and they're going to move around in a way that's predictable. And, you know, for those use cases or capacities, which are slightly less reliable, they'll just be a different discount variable on that that capacity pricing.
3: Mark your calendars for May 30th at 1 p.m. Eastern. That's when Latitude Media and Origami Solar will unveil new research on how recycled steel can help reinvigorate the U.S. solar industry. Why recycled steel? Well, the solar industry is dependent on imported aluminum for frames, leaving it vulnerable to geopolitics, supply disruptions, and higher-cost transportation. By switching from aluminum to recycled steel, solar producers can reduce greenhouse gas emissions and qualify for IRA domestic content incentives. Have questions about the shift to steel and the impact on supply chains? Join Latitude Media's Stephen Lacey, Origami Solar CEO Greg Patterson, and American Clean Power's MJ Shao for this live virtual event. Again, it's May 30th at 1 p.m. Eastern. Register for free at latitudemedia.com slash events or click the link in the show notes.
1: The other question with V2G, which is also, we talked about it with V1G, but I think it's probably even more of a question here is is compensation and value to the customer. Because there's obviously a difference between asking the customer, can I delay your charging three hours at 2 p.m. tomorrow versus can I... Discharge your battery into the grid, and thus you will actually have less uh, charge in the battery and, until we recharge it. What do we know about compensation requirements for V2G, and and is there enough juice there? Like, is the value to the grid sufficient to pay for whatever that compensation is going to be required to the customer, plus whatever margin you know the intermediary, be it GM or somebody else, is going to command in the in the middle? Yeah, th- this this is one of my my
2: favorite. Um thinking points around around V to G, which is that a lot of people think like, well, okay, there's there's X value in a certain vehicle or a certain market of vehicles for V1G. And if you can reverse the charge, well then it's twice as it's twice as valuable. But it's actually not twice as valuable. It's much more it's much more than twice as valuable. If you think about V1G value, it's only it's only a megawatt capacity if the vehicle is not charged. And a lot of times what happens, people bring their vehicle someplace, they plug it in, and it's charged. And so you've got, you've got basically megawatt capacity for as long as it's sitting there either charging or maybe about to be charging. But if you have V2G, then it's basically, it's got capacity in some form available for the entire time that it's plugged in. Because most of the time, you'll be able to take a little bit of power out and you can also defer from a potential charge happening. And so if you think about, there's me, you know, for V1G, there's millions of cars out there, a very large percentage of which are not useful to the grid at all because they're already charged. So, so it, it's not just double. It's like, and, and I, the math can be done several ways, but it's really three or four times as valuable for a given, for a given vehicle. Um, so in my mind, V1G is valuable because... It allows us to craft these pathways through which we can track the data, track the economics, you know, get customers comfortable with the very idea of their grid being a fun, their their vehicle being a fungible grid asset, um, and then from the customer perspective, it's just not that much of a bigger leap to go from V1G to V2G, even though it's a bigger technical leap. It's just like, hey, uh, you know, the the, the the emotional impact of hey, tomorrow at 2 p.m., do you mind if I make sure you're not charging versus, hey, tomorrow at 2 p.m., I'm going to take you down from 100% to 80% or 80% to 75% or something, and I'm going to throw you, you know, a 10 spot. Is that cool? Uh, you know, that's that for me is, is really where the impact comes in here. When I think of the impact of the, of the vehicles on the grid, it's really what you can do with, with the V2G that really gives it that exponential
1: pop. Where are we in the development of that a V2G as a market. Like V V1G, there's you know, you said you've got well, half a dozen programs around the country. I mean there there are dozens of them out there. It's happening. Uh often the times they're pilot programs and so on. But it but it's pretty widespread, at least across the US. Uh where where are we with V two G um so there have been some pilots
2: going on with V2G. We've demonstrated our vehicles um, in V2G mode. Uh, we don't have any programs going with utilities for V2G mode, but I think the expectation in the industry is that, is that what happens is these existing programs with utilities just roll right into V2G programs. And so, uh, you know, there are there are additional hardware requirements and so you've got to have that commensurate additional economic benefit. Um, and partly for that reason, I think you're going to see a, a geographic distribution of these programs that is that is energy market driven. You know, when when you look at the economic value of V1G or a V2G vehicle, um, it's a it's a function of the energy prices and the volatility in a given market. So high renewables and hence high volatility markets are going to be the places where you're going to see not just V1G but V2G um, and then you're also going to see spiky activity in states where they incentivize this ahead of other states. I mean, you, you've been watching this field for as long as anybody, and you know, all of a sudden, some state comes out of nowhere, and all of a sudden, they're the hotspot for a given technology. We'll see that happening here as well.
1: I do remember that in the early days of solar, particularly for distributed solar, right? There'd be like state random state X would suddenly introduce some rebate program for residential $5 solar, and it would get
2: exactly, it yeah. would get
1: filled up, in like. 20 minutes and then all of a sudden it would pop and be like the largest market for for a month until the subsidy ran out.
2: Yeah. We, we used to we used to have sales folks go and hang out at City Hall waiting for the rebates to open. There'd be like a long line, it'd be like a fancy concert and people like queuing up outside to get this crazy rebate. <laughs> right,
1: right. The next day. Yeah, exactly. Um talk a little bit more about the hardware requirements. I mean, that is one difference. Well, I guess on both sides, like what from a technology standpoint, what is required in order to do managed charging and what is required in order to do V to G? Because they're sort of different.
2: Yeah. So so for managed charging, all you need to do is be able to tell, you need to be able to stop the charging. And so you can do that through the, the charging equipment or you could do telematics through the vehicle. Um, and depending on who you're talking to in the industry, you know one is the perfect answer, and the other, or the other is the perfect answer. Um, I think our perspective is is you get the most flexibility if you can control it on the car because the car is going to go different places, and you could, you know, one one point of connection gives you V1G capabilities anywhere you go. Um, so so technically V1G is 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 pretty simple on that front. With V to G, you have um, you've got, now you've got power flowing uh, backwards into a source that might otherwise normally just be you know flowing energy out. So you so you need to have that shut off capability, and you need to have a, a, a system which is engineered to be able to allow bidirectional power flow at least at that point of interconnection. Um, so uh, so there is additional complexity there. Um, one of the things that we're seeing is that is that the places where there's a strongest interest for V to G, you're already going through a process where maybe you're adding some additional storage um, at the building, um, and oftentimes being paired with solar, which really gives you these really powerful uh, positive feedback loops between the solar, the on the on site storage, and the vehicle storage. Um, which which really provides some nice benefits um in terms of resilience and cost effectiveness. Um and that helps defray the cost of uh the V to G if you were doing a, a V to G only solution
1: for just the vehicle. That's a good segue, actually, into the, the third category, which is V to H or vehicle to building or something like that. Because as you said, lots of folks are installing stationary batteries to provide yep. resilience or backup or or something like that. Uh, lots of the same folks are buying electric vehicles, which have much, much larger batteries that are sitting there generally unutilized uh, and and could provide much more backup power potentially. And so the promise of v to h or whatever we want to call it is, why do you need the stationary battery? You've got a much bigger battery in your vehicle. If you're willing to give up on some range, which we should probably talk about, then in the event of an outage, use your vehicle to power the home. How high a priority is that for you guys? So it's a really high priority for us to be able to deliver
2: a full home solution for our vehicle customers. Um, And that is what we're going to be rolling out um, with the Silverado is you'll be able to pick up not just the storage, but all the additional charging infrastructure, but also solar um, through our SunPower partnership. Um, And so you'll be able to get a a full home ecosystem um, with the vehicle. Um, And I think that's really important for, for folks. I think the, the the number of times people use V to H is gonna be low. The amount of emotional equity that they put in the comfort of having a home that's resilient and you know, for some people it matters also if it's renewably powered. But it's amazing how much uh zeitgeist there is around vehicles powering your home and that sort of providing this dramatic enhancement to resilient for, resilience for the homeowner um and it's 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 real like the the number of outages we have around the country and you guys have done a lot of segments on this around you know the aging grid um now with you know a lot more uh, volatile resources on it more climate change there's just going to be more outages um and i think you know everyone going out and getting a generator is not the solution this is going to be a very compelling solution and it, and it sort of matches the, the needs of the time. So um, I think it's going to be very powerful and that's why we're putting a lot of time and energy into coming up with a really cool package that offers that.
1: In your mind, ultimately, does it displace stationary batteries for, used for resilience? Like, Is there any reason why you'd still want or need a, a power wall or whatever it might be if you've got five times the capacity in your vehicle that you can use? Yeah,
2: people still want to be able to drive their car in the, you know, when when the zombie apocalypse hits or a hurricane or something else, you still got to go out and buy bread or you know, do what you got to do and it's it's not it's not ideal for the it's not ideal that, that you know your refrigerator turns off when someone, you know, drives down to get new sandbags or whatever for the for the home. Um but I think also the the other benefit of of the battery is that when the when the vehicle isn't there, your battery is earning its salary by being this load management asset and doing other grid balancing stuff. And if you've got solar, then um, uh, you, I mean you're aware of all the all the different legal challenges coming up to some of the solar pricing structures around the country. Those actually enhance the economic value of batteries. So so the the. The battery installation is is really an important sort of workhorse for the home energy management ecosystem, and as you know, more and more municipalities move towards electrification mandates, that just becomes even more critical. Um, so I think economics are are generally moving very powerfully in favor of home batteries, with or without
1: V2G, and again, the combination of those two is those two is particularly compelling. Stepping back, I guess so. Presuming we like all three of these categories ultimately, and we think that people who have EVs in the long term will probably need to do some managed charging. They'll maybe want to do some vehicle to grid, and they will certainly like to be able to back up their home uh, with their vehicle if they can. You know, my presumption is these are not ultimately three separate markets. This is one holistic uh, yeah. managed charging thing. So I have my vehicle and I'm interacting with somebody and somebody is sort of in the background trying to figure out at any given time what I should be doing with that battery if it's plugged in. How do you think about the like ecosystem around that ultimately? what is the role that like oEMs like gm should play who else needs to be in that ecosystem like where do we where do we land from a market structure perspective
2: yeah that's a that's a great question um, This is still a very early market um you know there's a lot of folks out there that have developed a big name for it but the, the space is just going to grow and grow, and there's a lot of folks that want a piece of it. Um, you've got competitors ranging from, you know, the solar companies want to get more of a piece. The you know, the generacs of the world, they're like, wait, we're the storage people, and so everything should be coming for, through us. you got, you know, Google and Amazon who are out there trying to say, like, wait a minute, we're the home communications interface people, so all those devices really... Need to be coming through Siri or Alexa or whatever else, um, and then you've got you know umpteen home energy management standalone independent device companies. So um, I think it's I think it's really a, an outstanding question as to as to what that final structure looks like. But I think the reason that there's so much push for this is I, I don't think that every home is going to have five or six home energy management apps. You're just not going to do it. You're not gonna you're not gonna sell. You know, availability on your refrigerator's capacity to one utility, and then have, you know, your CCA take the the capacity on the on the and on your vehicle, and and all those things have to talk to each other and be managed basically as a homogeneous load. So, um, so the you know that suggests that there's there's going to be a lot of participants and not that many interfaces between the customer and the energy market whether that's utility or some other aggregated market transaction um, I, <laughs> there's a uh, there's a there's a funny analogy we use um, on my team, which is um you ever see hunger games sure you know and hunger games and uh and the hero and everyone comes up and they're and they're they're up on those pillars and everyone's sort of looking around at each other and everyone's trying to figure out like what's going to happen out in the field. Well, I think we're we're kind of at that stage of the market where everybody has to both compete with each other, but also cooperate with each with each other, um, and that's and that's what you're seeing. Like we've we have an enormous amount of partnerships, um, and we're building more and more because no one's going to be able to do everything, and so you have to you have to have um, an, an open ecosystem where you're pairing with folks to make sure your customer is getting the best experience. And then making sure that you're participating in a win. We are our solutions have to work wherever our vehicles work, and that's everywhere. And we're not we're not going to provide the same amount of functionality
1: every location, but the vehicle still has to be able to capture that benefit, and we have to make sure they get it. I assume you're the Katniss Everdeen in that in that metaphor. Uh, we're,
2: we represent the the the, co- the common good across that uh, that that ecosystem. Of course, of picking specific characters. Yeah.
1: <laughs> All right. Well, this is um, very illuminating, and these are these are all markets, or ultimately one unified market, that is going to develop, I think, quickly over the the coming years. So we'll have much more to talk about. But in the meantime, Ty, thank you so much for doing this. Shell, sure, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Ty Jaegerson is the VitaX X lead at General Motors. This show is a co-production of Postscript Media and Canary Media. You can head over to canarymedia.com for links to topics on today's show. Postscript is supported by Prelude Ventures, a venture capital firm that partners with entrepreneurs to address climate change across a range of sectors, including advanced energy, food and ag, transportation and logistics, advanced materials and manufacturing, and advanced computing. This episode was produced by Daniel Waldorf. Mixing by Roy Campanella and Sean Marquand. Theme song by Sean Marquand. I'm Shail Khan, and this is Catalyst.